the Second World War, a podcast by Stephen Bedard. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash hopesreason. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm going to do something really crazy here. I'm actually going to try and summarize the entire First World War in one episode. And not in a six-hour Dan Carlin-style episode either. I'm not going to try to do anything like a comprehensive summary of the Great War here. I will only be giving the broadest of outlines, but I think this will help us to set up the Second World War. How did the First World War start? I'm going to share the events that ignited the conflict, but we shouldn't think of this as the real reason for the war. There were deep nationalistic tensions all across Europe, not the least of which was the German Kaiser's dislike slash jealousy of Britain. But that'll be something for another day. Most people start the story with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria in 1914 in Sarajevo. The actual assassination was a minor miracle when you see all the mistakes made by the assassins. You could call it a comedy of errors if it didn't include the death of real human beings. Five of the six assassins were Serbian, and this gave Austria-Hungary the excuse to declare war on Serbia. Austria-Hungary had long been one of the great powers of Europe, although by this time it was in a time of decline. Officially, Austria-Hungary's intentions were not to start a war. They made some demands on Serbia to settle the grievances caused by the assassination. However, like the Nazis some decades later, the demands were designed to be unacceptable, being only an excuse to start the war they really wanted. Could Austria-Hungary defeat Serbia? Probably, although in the actual war, Serbia did quite well against them, despite being so outnumbered. But there would have been no world war if it was just Austria-Hungary against Serbia. The complication was that Serbia had an agreement with Russia that they would come to their aid if attacked. Austria-Hungary knew about this, and so they reached out to Germany, and the Kaiser was more than happy to help Austria-Hungary. The problem with this, however, was that Russia had a military agreement with France. If Germany assisted Austria-Hungary in a war against Russia, they would be attacked by France. This would have to be done very carefully. This is where the Schlieffen Plan comes in. The assumption was that Russia would take much longer to mobilize than France. If France could be knocked out of the war quickly, then they could turn their full attention to the Russians. The Schlieffen Plan was a plan that had been worked out for many years and was designed to move the Germans quickly through Belgium and provide a knockout blow to France. This added another complication. Belgium had an agreement with Britain and if Germany attacked Belgium, there was a chance that Britain would enter the war. But that was a chance they had to take. To make a long story short, the Schlieffen Plan didn't work. But to be fair, it may have worked in its original form. It had been greatly adjusted by the generals who put it into practice, and their changes may have been fatal to its success. Not only did it not work, invading Belgium did bring Britain into the war. Germany invaded Belgium on August 3rd, 1914, and Britain declared war on Germany on August 4th. The British Expeditionary Force linked up with the Belgians and French to form what became known as the Western Front. Unlike the Second War, they were able to stop the Germans from advancing further into France. Not that it did them much good, 
as neither side could move the lines very far. The Western Front became a stationary line that ended the lives of thousands and thousands of men, leaving them in a muddy grave. Just as there was a Western Front, there was also an Eastern Front. The Russians were able to mobilize faster than Germany or Austria-Hungary had expected. Austria-Hungary, despite being the instigators of the war, didn't have the resources, men, or morale to take on the Russians by themselves, and so Germany stepped in to take up a significant portion of the line. Germany would repeatedly come to Austria-Hungary's aid, very much like what they would have to later do with Italy. Speaking of Italy, they had a treaty with Germany and Austria-Hungary before the war, but they held back for some time before entering the war. When they did enter the war, they came in on the side of the British and the French. But while Italy was figuring out what to do, Turkey entered the war on the side of the Germans and Austria-Hungary. Turkey, like Austria-Hungary, had once been a mighty empire, but it was now in a season of decline. Turkey was described as the sick man of Europe. This meant that there were three major powers on each side, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey on one side, and Russia, France, and Britain on the other. The conflict continued on both fronts as armies on all sides needed to rediscover how to wage war in this new technological age. Some armies were still using men on horses with swords, while others were using machine guns, massive artillery, and gas warfare to create destruction on a previously unimagined level. In 1915, Britain attempted to break the stalemate of trench warfare by opening a new front. This plan, largely conceived by Winston Churchill, started as a naval attack on Turkey at Gallipoli. It evolved into a combined naval attack and army landing. A good number of these troops were the ANZAC, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. These soldiers really proved themselves, and their efforts in World War I are still greatly remembered in Australia and New Zealand. The battles at Gallipoli lasted for most of 1915. The British and Allies did not think much of the Turkish army and assumed it would be a relatively easy fight. The Turkish troops surprised everyone by not only defending well, but ultimately defeating the invaders. It was such a bad defeat that it's amazing that Churchill's reputation ever recovered from it. 1916 saw some of the greatest battles of World War I, including Verdun and the Somme, each of which was a terrible slaughter. It was also the year that first saw the mass use of tanks as they tried to find a way to cross the deadly no-man's land. Churchill was instrumental in seeing the use of tanks. He really caught a vision for this new technology. A bit of trivia, the name Tank was actually a code name that was meant to throw the enemy off the real nature of what was being built. Britain and France saw the potential of the tank, but Germany built only a few. 1917 was another year of great change in the war. While there was still the back and forth of trench warfare, there were other events happening on the world stage. One was the Russian Revolution. This is something that I would like to return to in detail at a later time. What we need to know now is that the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Lenin and his right-hand man Joseph Stalin were ultimately successful. This led to what would become the Soviet Union. The revolution required the end of Russia's involvement in the war. An armistice was signed in late 1917 between Germany and Russia, with peace becoming official in 1918. 1917 was also the year that the United States entered the war. 
This was a bit of a surprise, as the U.S. had generally been isolationist, and Wilson had ran on the platform of keeping the U.S. out of the war. A couple of things changed that. One was Germany's institution of unrestricted submarine warfare. When we think of U-boats sinking ships in the Atlantic, we often think of the Second World War, and yet this was a major part of Germany's strategy in the First War. But this caused a problem when American citizens began to die as a result. In addition, a message was intercepted in which Germany was encouraging Mexico to attack the U.S. That did not go down well at all. The U.S. was ready to enter the war. Sort of. It actually took them quite a while to get their forces together and to sort through the logistics. This put Germany in a difficult position. With the closing of the Eastern Front, they were able to shift forces to the West. If they could knock the British and French out of the Western Front before the Americans arrived, they still had a chance of winning the war. Unfortunately for them, it did not work out that way. 1918 saw some major offenses by the Germans, but they could not achieve the victories that they needed. By July, their army began to fall apart. By the autumn, things moved quickly. On October 30th, Turkey made peace and on November 3rd, Austria-Hungary also made peace. On November 9th, Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated, and on November 11th, an armistice brought the end to hostilities of the First World War. As a Canadian, I thought I would share that the last soldier killed in the First World War was a Canadian soldier. George Lawrence Price died at 10.58 a.m., November 11th, 1918, after being shot by a German sniper. Although the armistice ended hostilities, it was the Treaty of Versailles signed in June of 1919 that officially ended the war. It could be argued that this treaty also all but ensured that the Second World War would take place. It was an extremely harsh treaty that punished Germany greatly for its role in the war. The war to end all wars was over, but it would soon be clear that this war had not ended all wars. It only provided the framework for another world war. For you, the listeners of the Second World War podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. My recommendation for you is The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. This is one of the best books out there about the beginning of the First World War. I have read it and can wholeheartedly recommend it as a great introduction to World War I. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash hopesreason. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash hopesreason for your free audiobook. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and visit me at the website, secondworldwarpodcast.net, on Facebook at facebook.com slash secondworldwarpodcast, and on Twitter at ww2 underscore podcast. Consider supporting the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes or financially through patreon.com slash hopesreason. Thank you and God bless.